see this through lack of power. We start to see this through uh, loss of lean mass, bone mineral density changes. And then the biggest telling thing is increase in body fat. Um, we'll also have hot flashes, night sweats, um, urogenital issues, gut health issues. And it's because we have receptor sites all over our body that are attuned to estrogen and progesterone. So in my field, you know, which is the fitness, the fitness field, the change in body fat is like the number one thing we hear from clients. And they're like, I'm just gaining weight. I don't like, I, I have no control over it. So what, what is happening that is causing body fat increase or a body composition change? Yeah. So there's a couple of different things to consider here. So when we're talking about estrogen and progesterone and the changing of the ratios, they have specific jobs within um, the immune system and within some of the tissue growth areas for things like bone mineral density, for lean mass, and the signaling to keep body fat down. When we start having changes in these ratios, we also lose uh, diversity in the gut microbiome. I'll come back to the gut microbiome in a minute. But when we're looking at what's happening with estrogen that comes up and estrogen that comes down, it directly affects the muscle because estrogen is tightly tied to myosin. And so it can control how strong myosin attaches to actin for muscle contraction and muscle contractile strength. But estrogen is also tightly tied to the basic satellite cell of lean mass development. So when we start losing estrogen, we start losing the signal for lean mass development for that basic satellite cell. And we also lose some of the neuromuscular aspect of depolarizing a muscle to get a strong contraction. So when we start losing that integrity of the muscle, we start getting more sarcopenic effects. So we start putting more fat within the muscle and start losing muscle mass. And we also start to get a signal from the brain that, hey, we are losing a lot of functions. So we must be in kind of a deprivation state. So we need to start storing body fat. And we start seeing it in hips, thighs, but it's specifically in the abdominal area because the abdominal area is in and around organs and it becomes more of a metabolically active fat. So the body's looking for something that's going to produce hormones. When we get to the gut microbiome, this is where the biggest, I guess, causation of, of body fat and body composition change comes from. So when we look at what happens in the gut, when we start looking at metabolism of hormones and how they become bioactive within the body, estrogen, progesterone, and other derivatives of steroid hormones have a first pass through the liver. So when they're um, secreted, they go to the liver, they get metabolized into kind of a holding form. They get excreted through bile into the intestines. Now there are specific microbes in the intestines that will then unwrap these hormones, release back them into the um, body's circulation for them to do what they need to do. When we start losing our hormones, we start losing the amount of bacteria that can do that. So we're reducing the diversity. We're reducing the diversity. We're also 
signaling an increase in the type of bacteria that causes systemic inflammation, that um, causes us to increase body fat because we start to have this change in the major phyla from bacteriotes, which encourages lean mass gain and, and holding on to lean mass, to having more firmicutes. Now the firmicutes phyla is associated with obesity and accrual of body fat because it, they are very, very efficient in pulling out all the energy possible out of everything that you eat. Hmm. So if we look to change it, first we have to look at the kind of food that we're eating so that we can really feed the deep gut bacteria for a really wide variety. So this is your fibrous fruit and veg. And then we have to look at the type of training we're doing because we need an external stress that is going to create an adaptive response the way the hormones used to support. So it's a twofold thing that we really need to back up in order to stop that change in body composition. So I, obviously the training aspect is something that I'm really excited to, to get your insight on. And um, if anybody listening hasn't purchased or read Next Level, um, Stacy does a really good job of breaking down the styles of training, but hopefully we'll get into it. So what you're saying, just to touch on that, is there's a lot of mechanical things happening in that period. Um, the thing that I really liked about your book that you opened with is, you know, the perceptual aspect of it as well. So a lot of my, you know, background is in psychology. And, uh, you know, the one thing that really stood out to me was the perceptual period of the time and how that can exacerbate some of this psychological aspects of that you know that period of life um yeah. and how yeah. people kind of get into their heads and their behaviors start following into that you know and how it, it reminded me of of course i'm blanking on it but um touch sorry touch on that so when we look at the sociocultural aspect around menopause right we can look all the way back in the history where because biomedical research has been um in a male environment through a male lens, all the scientific studies, the diagnoses, everything has come from a male point of view. So when women started experiencing menopause uh, and we first started getting records written down about um, medicine and stuff, estrogen, progesterone hadn't really been discovered yet. So they started telling or assuming that women were somehow increasing the amount of toxicity they had because they weren't bleeding monthly. Um, that they were going crazy, so they are often put in insane asylums, and it became this very taboo thing to talk about, especially around the Puritan era, because women who were burned at the stake as witches were primarily women who were perimenopause, because they were having hot flashes, so all of a sudden they like start sweating, and then they get really cold and shiver, and no one understood what was going on, plus they'd have a lot of mood switches and mood changes and body composition changes, so people assumed it was the work of the devil, they were witches. So it's always been put in this negative scope. But if we look at non-Western societies and we look at people who embrace aging as a rite of passage, as a rite of becoming the elder and revered, there aren't words for hot flash. No one talks about it being a negative thing. As a matter of fact, they embrace it and think about it as a positive thing and say, sweet, now I'm part of the older set and I'm revered and people come to me for advice, they follow me because I can provide insight to all of my experiences. So when we look at the different cultures and we talk about all the negative words that are associated with menopause, 
and people start thinking about that, then it can make symptoms worse where people are like, oh my God, I'm gonna get a hot flash. And then they start feeling a build of heat and then it comes on. And the more they think about it, the more they are in tune to all the small little things that are happening. And that's this huge negative thing that is occurring in a woman, in a woman, but it's actually just a natural process of aging. So I always push and be like, look, it happens to every woman, just like most XX will end up with periods, right? So it's a natural process of aging. Women do not age in a linear fashion like men, although that's all we talk about. When we talk about how people age, we look at that linear fashion and this whole period of time of peri-postmenopause is ignored until women are in their 60s and they start hearing about all the pathophysiological aspects of cardiovascular disease, obesity, diabetes, um, Alzheimer's disease, dementia, because that becomes the drain on the public health system. So that's where the research dollars are going and that's where we start seeing more uptake in the media. So it's this whole negative connotation and no one wants to talk about it that we need to change because if we put a positive spin on it and say it's a natural process of aging, our bodies are changing, but we can take control of that and we can mitigate a lot of the changes that are happening when we understand so we can keep progressing and reaching our potential as we get older. Yeah, and that's a, you know, what I was stumbling over to remember was, um, it really reminded me of a book that I read, which is Gender in Our Brains. And I, I can't remember who wrote it, but they really examined, you know, the difference between the male and female brain and how so much of it is sociocultural. And just, it, it, was, it was really, really fascinating. Um, and they talked about, you know, the negative connotation that we have with um, women going through menstrual cycles and they don't have a lot of those negative connotations in other cultures. And it really reminded me of what you talked about in that this is a, you know, the Western cultures are really male dominated and they made up all these studies back in the 1400s about women's brains being smaller. And they, every like generation, they made up a weirder and different approach to saying that women's brains were smaller when it was really all just made up so that they could, yep. you know, degrade women. So again, I think that while there is a really strong mechanical function that is happening in this, you know, perimenopausal phase, there is that sociocultural aspect and revering getting older is something to be proud of. And, you know, look at the positive sides, the wisdom that you've accrued, you know, how much life experience and um, is something to, to look at it in, on the positive side. Um, yeah, but I, I recognize it is really hard because our culture is one that embraces youth in women. Because yeah. you'll see what I think Leonardo DiCaprio has been in the news because all of his girlfriends are 25 or younger. And it's just part of it. It's like in Hollywood and now the media, the women never age, but the men do and the men are aging gracefully. So we're always bombarded with it. It's not okay to be old, especially if you're a woman. And here's all the things you can do to change it. So it's a it's an incredible amount of narrative that we have to change. Yeah. Well, so speaking, you know, along the narrative side of things, you know, we train a, you know, probably 80% of our clients are women. There's a huge narrative around lifting weights, which is, you know, we are a resistance training based program, lifting weights, getting bulky, and essentially, you know, my my biggest flaw is the way that I look and the way that I lift because a lot of the people that sit down in front of me say, well, I want to work out, but I don't want to look like you. 
I'd be like, I want to look like you. I love muscles. Those are awesome. One of the things that I love that you're, you know, you're known for saying is women are not small men. Um, and, you know, why don't you touch on the fact that, you know, it is different to train. How should women going to this period adjust their training? I, I just want to throw that at you. Yeah. So first and foremost, it's really, really difficult for women to get bulky. Unless they have a genetic predisposition and they concentrate on eating a shit ton. And this is the misconception where women who are recreational athletes, and they'll like go and they'll do 10 and 15 reps. And they're like, I don't want to get bulky. I just want to get toned. It's like, well, unless you're eating 3000 plus calories a day and you're eating on a schedule and eating a lot of protein, then it's going to be very difficult for your body to put on a lot of lean mass because you need abundance to put on muscle. And when we start talking about how should women train, women, by the nature of being XX, are much better for power-based training. When you're younger, you can get away with the hypertrophy-type movements because you have the support within the body to develop strength and to have the hypertrophy-type responses of splitting the fiber and building it back. But when we get to perimenopause and, and postmenopause, we need to look more from a central nervous system angle. So as I was talking earlier, with estrogen so tightly tied to the satellite cell and the neuromuscular standpoint of acetylcholine, when we lose estrogen, we need to lift heavy. We need to do that power-based training, that zero to six reps, the you know, three to six sets. And it's imperative to do that to stimulate myosin, to maintain the integrity of myosin, to allow the gap junction, the area between the nerve and the muscle fiber itself to hold on to more acetylcholine, which is the neurotransmitter that passes through that little gap junction to depolarize and create a muscle contraction. Because as estrogen goes down, we lose acetylcholine, which is another reason why we lose strength. So when we're looking at lifting heavy, it becomes a, a neural stimulus where the nerve is like, oh my gosh, this is a really heavy load. I need to be able to recruit as many muscle fibers as possible for very strong contraction. And myosin, you better do your job of grabbing on strong and not being weak. So this neuromuscular stimulus is now taking the place of what estrogen used to do. So if we're looking at lifting heavy, it's about preservation of existing lean mass, but also working the power angle to maintain integrity of our muscle contraction. We won't get bulky when we do this. We will maintain strength. We can build more strength. We will build tissue, of course, but Again, unless you're super, super focused, and even more so when you hit your mid-40s of trying to put more food in your body to develop that lean mass, it's super hard to put on lean mass. We see a lot of women who are in their mid to late 40s, and they're doing power-based training, and they're getting strong, and then they have to take a break for travel or something like that, so it could be two to four weeks. They just have dumbbells or body weight stuff they lose a lot of lean mass and they come back, they haven't necessarily lost the strength, but they've lost the lean mass. And it's really, really, really difficult to put that mass back on. Yeah. It's almost, and this is, you know, something that I've thought over the years, it's almost insulting to female bodybuilders when, you know, any females like, well, I don't want to join your group class because I don't want to get bulky. And it's like, you know, these women have spent four hours a day training and eating for, years and years to get the way that they have, you know, the way that they want to look. 
it's not going to happen that easily. Um, yep. But so the, the other thing that we run into um, in our program, and I know in a lot of programs, is the intensity of that lifting. So, you know, we program a lot of power lifts. We start pretty much every workout with a core and a power movement, five or reps, five, you know, five to seven reps. Getting the right intensity is always the biggest pushback with a lot of women that we train. They're afraid to lift that heavy. Um, and, you know, we'll, a lot of times we'll do a set and then the last set we'll do what's called a plus set where we'll do, all right, you're doing three sets of five. The last set, let's, let's see what you can do. And they end up getting like 12 reps. And yep. we're like, we probably could have gone way heavier. Next week, let's go way heavier. But there's always like, oh, well, I, can never, I can't lift that. How would you advise, you know, a woman that, you know, you know that they need to lift really heavy. What's the best way for them to know what weight to use? What should they be feeling? We've talked about RPE scales with, with our clients. It's very confusing for a lot of them. Um, what would you yeah. recommend? Well, we know from, from research that RPE doesn't really work for women because they underestimate. Um, unless it's more cardiovascular, like a VO2 workout, and then they really can dial in what a nine or 10 means. But when we're looking at it from a resistance training point of view, they might be lifting 70% of their one RM and say it's a, a 10 on an RPE of, of one to 10, because they don't know what it actually feels like to have that, that central nervous system. So we try to get people to first do your basic movements and see how well they are moving. And then we add load, but we always work with tempo loads when they're first starting out. So when you have that tempo pause halfway down the squat, you hold for two seconds and then you down and power back up. Then that tempo hold, that's where they start to feel what heavy means. And then it feels light when they go down and up again. So if it's like, okay, well you get to that tempo hold and you can hold it, you're not heavy enough. So we're just trying to cue them as they go to see what that central nervous system feeling is. And the other thing I tell people is it's not a cardiovascular workout. When you go to a gym and you see people who are lifting, in particular men, because men tend to have more experience and feel better in a gym situation, you'll see them sitting down on the bench after doing a couple of lifts and they sit there forever. That's what we're after. We're not after a metabolic burn. We're not after getting your heart rate up. We're not after putting on a sweat. Of course, you will feel that when you're lifting heavy. But we don't want you to superset because if you're supersetting, it's pointless. You're not lifting heavy enough we need you to lift heavy enough that you want to sit down for those two minutes so that you feel, okay, all right, now I feel the nerve, uh, I can feel it, I feel less fatigue, I can ready, I'm ready to go again. If you're doing more cardiovascular stuff, those two minutes, you just feel your heart rate come down, but you still feel like, nah, I can't really do it. So it's just slight nuances when we're trying to coach what that nervous system feeling is versus what that cardiovascular feeling is. That's phenomenal. And I actually had never read about RPE not being effective for women, but it makes a lot of sense because we see it every day in the gym. And it's like our trainers would like bash their head against the wall because they want them to understand it and they underestimate it for sure. Yep. Um, so your recommendation for women that want a body composition shift or to change their body composition is focus on heavy lifts for lower reps, correct? Yes. Um, and you talk a lot about the sit training and I've never actually heard it called sit. I've always heard it hit. 
Um, can you explain SIT training? Yeah, uh, so HIT has gotten a lot of press, right? But when, when we typically think of HIT, we think of like, unfortunately, those like F45 or Orange Theory type classes where people go in and they're working out for 45 or so minutes and they get a sweat on and they feel like they've worked hard, but they haven't. They haven't gone hard enough to be hard and it hasn't been easy enough to be easy. It's kind of that moderate intensity. So we want to take a subcategory of HIT out and it's sprint interval training or SIT. And there has been a plethora of research has come out in both uh, the clinically not so healthy population as well as the athletic population. Where we're looking at sprint interval training to induce metabolic and cardiovascular changes. One of the things that happens when women get to the late perimenopause, early postmenopause, is they don't adapt from an endurance standpoint. They just get slower and they don't get an increase in their blood volume. They don't get an increase in their mitochondria. And that's because women by the nature of being XX already have all those adaptations. So in order to stimulate greater adaptations, we need a higher stress. So sprint interval training is 20 seconds to max 30 seconds, as hard as you can go with variable recovery in between. So it's not Tabata because most people do Tabata with body weight and that's not heavy enough and it's not hard enough. So we're talking about on a treadmill, on an assault bike, on an erg, a rowing erg or stairs and you're going as hard and as fast as you can for up to 30 seconds. And then you have minimum a minute 30 off. Again, it's to regroup central nervous system regroup the muscles to be able to hit the next interval as hard as you can go. The whole total time of a set um, training session, including warm up and cool down, should not exceed 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And this is another thing where people can't get their head around it. It's like, but it's only 15 minutes. It's like, yes, but the intensity is such a strong intensity that is creating a lot of epigenetic change, not only within the muscle, from increasing mitochondria, increasing vascular compliance is causing some changes to now allow your blood vessels to respond a lot better. It's increasing micro um, circulation in and around the muscle so that you're getting better blood flow to the muscle. You're also increasing the amount of glute four gates that are available. So these are uh, kind of portals that open up to allow glucose to come into the muscle without insulin. And we're also increasing the amount of mitochondria because it's such a huge stress to the body. The body's like, I need every available organelle to work so that I can fuel and overcome the stress. So when we're looking at that sprint interval training, it's super important for peri and, and early postmenopausal women to implement this to be able to keep adapting for that anaerobic and aerobic capacity, but also to then signal the body that we don't want body fat we need to put more fat into our storage forms within the, the muscle being near the mitochondria. And we also need to be able to pull more carbohydrate in and store carbohydrate so that we can overcome the stress again. If we're doing uh, our media type hit, that 45 or 60 minute class, we don't get any of those changes. We just stay in this moderate intensity zone that increases cortisol, increases sympathetic drive, increases body fat, and we don't have any kind of epigenetic change that allows our body to change the metabolism 
and change the function of the muscle. And that's where I find the biggest struggle with working with clients is, you know, there, there's a dance that we have to play with. They're, they're paying clients. They need, they always want to feel like they got something out of it. So if we said your workout today is five minutes and you're going to be completely miserable for that five minutes, you're going to go home. It's a tough sell. Um, but at the same time, you know, we kind of program a lot of these types of intervals, these, you know, we call them hit because that's the, that's the word everybody's familiar with. Yep. Um, it's so hard getting people to reach that level of intensity. I mean, so many people have never been even close to that in their lives that they think that 70% of their max heart rate is like, they're going to, they're, yeah, they're completely at the, at the max. So you know, would you recommend uh, a heart rate range or a heart rate monitor to, you know, shoot for that, you know, really high intensity so they can actually have a, you know, some feedback on that? I'm not a fan of uh, heart rate monitoring, especially for women who are in this kind of peri postmenopause state, because we have so many autonomic nervous system changes. So our heart rate variability goes down. So even if we are progressing and getting recovered, it, it doesn't represent because our respiratory rate is going up, our resting heart rate is going up, and it is very variable from day to day depending on what estrogen and progesterone are doing. So now, one of the favorite workouts that I like, especially if you're in a gym and you have a small class and you have people that are competitive against each other, is we do buy-ins and sprints. So like one of my favorite is we do six rounds of two minutes, but the first minute your buy-in is 10 really good form deadlifts at 65 or 70%. So it's pretty, pretty heavy for trying to go fast, 10 touch and go. If you hop on an assault bike or a rowing erg, and you're trying to accumulate as many calories as you can for the rest of that minute. And then you have a full minute off and you do it again. But every time you're doing the sprint, you're trying to get more calories or more meters than you had the first time. So not only are you competitive within yourself, but you're also competitive within the class. And this is the driving factor for people to go balls to the wall because of that competitiveness. And then they're like, oh my gosh, I never knew I could go that hard. And then they're like completely gasping in that one minute off. But then by the time that minute rolls around, they're like, oh wait, I can get up and do those deadlifts again. Yeah. And that's, we, we do EMOMs. That's a, one of our core kind of, you know, we call them every minute on the minute yep. you know, EMOM where it is a heavy lift finish with your conditioning for the minute, then the rest period. Um, and I love using the data to like challenge yourself every minute. So that that's definitely an approach that we can take. You mentioned HRV. Would you recommend an HRV or a ring whoop anything for women in this, in this stage? Um, watching for trends, perhaps, to see how far in they are getting into perimenopause, but knowing just across the board that um, the autonomic nervous system changes between phases of the menstrual cycle. So if you're using Aura or you're using Whoop, then you will not look like you've recovered when you're in the high hormone phase because it's comparing across the month. It's not going phase to phase. But when you get, after progesterone is released from ovulation and it starts to coming up, come up, it causes more of a sympathetic drive where our respiratory rate goes up, our resting heart rate goes up. So our, our HRV decreases. So you're always in the yellow or red before your period starts. So if you're looking at trends and you can say, hey, look, all of a sudden there's this big red 
time frame, and then you're like, oh, period starts because it becomes very variable. The length of the cycle can become very variable and bleed patterns become very variable. So it's a good way to track a trend, but I definitely wouldn't use it for day-to-day -day metrics. Okay. Um, changing gears a little bit, I want to talk uh, nutrition. So again, body composition change is by far what we get asked the most. Um, we, we, again, coming from, you know, a 34 year old male, a lot of people, you know, I say, you have no idea, you know, what you're talking about with what I'm going through. So talk to me about if, you know, we were working with a perimenopausal or a woman in that period of life, the best nutritional approach. I know you're a big fan of high protein. Your recommendations for protein are actually way higher than I would ever tell a client because they would like look at me like I was insane if I told them to eat as much protein as you do. So why don't you talk about protein intake, carbs, and just an overall nutritional approach during that period. If body composition change is the, is the goal, you know, for clients yep. listening, if you're not familiar with some of the terminology, losing body fat, maintaining, building muscle. Yeah, exactly. So again, the first thing is ditching those trendy diets of like fasted training, intermittent fasting, ketogenic, because it's based on male data and it doesn't work because we know women do better in a fed state regardless of age. And when I say fed, I mean 15 to 30 grams of protein and around 30 grams of carbohydrate before training. And then after training, around 35 or 40 grams of protein can be your real meal, but you wanna book in your training with food. And part of that is because of the hypothalamus. So the hypothalamus is an area in the brain is responsible for appetite control, it's responsible for thyroid function, endocrine function. And for the baseline calorie intake for women without any kind of dysfunction is 30 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass, but for men it's 15. So men can get away with fasted training, they can get away with high, uh, high fat, low carb, all these kinds of crazy things and their body will be okay. But for women, it's not good. Now, when we're also looking at what's happening in perimenopause, women are becoming more insulin resistant because uh, estrogen and progesterone are responsible for glucose homeostasis. And we're becoming more anabolically resistant with regards to muscle tissue. So when we look at it that way, we know that we have to do our good lot of training and follow it up with that 35 to 40 gram protein dose. Well, research where women didn't respond to a 20 gram dose, and so they don't look to increase it. But in the few that have looked to increase, women don't really start to get a muscle protein synthesis response until that 35 gram mark, which is around that three and a half gram leucine mark, because so, we have more anabolic resistance. So if I'm not incorrect, they're not seeing a muscle protein synthesis at 20, but it starts to happen at 40, where it happens much lower for men. Exactly. And that's exactly you know, telling a client that they should eat 40 grams of protein after a workout or in a typical meal is like, you would think that I just told them to walk on their hands. It's I know, because part of it is I blame the, um, the 80s with 
you know, the supermodels, the Kate Moss, or I guess it's the early 90s too, the Kate Moss and the Cindy Crawfords and all the calories in, calories out and fat burning and, you know, don't eat carbs and don't eat protein because you'll get bulky. But not and bold of it is women don't eat enough around the times that their body needs it. So like women will get up, they'll have a black coffee, they'll go training, they might have a banana or half a protein shake afterwards. And then they're like, oh, I'm full till lunch or after lunch and they get busy. And then they might have lunch at one o'clock, which is probably a salad with some lean protein if we're lucky. And then they'll have dinner and then they'll go to bed and they're bookending their calories more towards the back half of the day, but all the stress has occurred earlier in the day. So their body stays in a breakdown state, stays in a catabolic state. And the brain perceives that as, oh, shit, we need to conserve. So you start to get thyroid dysfunction. You start to get more accumulation of body fat. And it's really, really, really difficult to budget until you start to maneuver your nutrition around the stress points in your, in your day. So, you know, women are like, oh, I'm doing intermittent fasting. I really want to do this. It's like, well, do more time-restricted eating where you don't eat after dinner and then you have breakfast. Right. Because then you can get some of the benefits of the health research. But if you're an active woman, by the nature of exercising, you are getting that metabolic switch. You are getting some autoph autophagy. You're getting all the benefits they talk about from fasting through exercise. So when we start talking about it that way and they go, okay, now that we're in our late 40s, early 50s, we have to look at carbohydrate intake because we're a bit more sensitive. So we want the bulk of our carbohydrate to be from veggies and fruit, except around training. Around training is a time where you can have more simple carbohydrate, especially after training, when your body's like, ah, I need some, let's, let's bring it in. So we can really leverage the training points to allow people to manipulate their favorite foods and not feel deprived. And then when we talk about protein, it's really hard for people to imagine what 40 grams of protein looks like. So we really talk about it in dosing across the day. For every meal, you want a protein source that's around palm size and a thumb worth of lean protein for every meal. For every snack that you have, you want 15 grams. What's 15 grams? It's two thirds a cup of Chiavani yogurt or it's two hard boiled eggs. So people can start to kind of visualize what protein is. Because when you tell someone, oh, you need to eat two grams per kilogram of body weight or around a gram per pound, and that's 120 to 160 grams a day, people are like, what? But it's so essential now to really moderate your carbohydrate intake with protein to help with the insulin resistance, but also because we are more anabolically resistant, we need that protein to keep building that lean mass because we don't have estrogen to help stimulate it. So just to reiterate that, because I know my clients are probably, you know, again, still trying to do the calculations um, in the States. If a client was 150 pounds, you know, you would recommend about 1.25 uh, grams per body weight. So 175, 180 grams of protein a day or higher. So we say two to 2.3 grams per kilo. So it's around 1.1 to 1.3 grams per pound. Yeah. So your yeah. weight times 1.1 or 1.3 is, is like, and is that a baseline Monday through Sunday? Or is there a, on days that you train, there's this and off days you do this, or is that kind of the average that you want to hit, you know, overall? When we're doing heavy strength training days and heavy, um, uh, 
actual training days, you want to hit the higher end. The baseline for like what we want to hit on a daily basis is about 1.8. So that sits around that one gram per pound. Yeah. Um, but really it's the dosage where you're having it at regular doses across the day instead of concentrating on actual absolute macro that you want to intake, just think about it as how much I want to have at every meal. So if you are someone who eats chicken per se, you have uh, one chicken breast on lots of different colorful fruits and veg and you're topping it up with some beans, maybe some nuts, and then you're going to hit that 40 gram mark pretty easily. Um, but it's just the education is lacking in the States. Well, everywhere really, because we've lost health education and nutrition within our school systems. Yeah. Now is that, uh, is that number based a across the board, all body types, or is there, you know, a so if somebody came in, they were, they weighed 350 pounds, you know, is that still the recommendation versus, you know, a woman that was 180 pounds that wanted to lose body fat? So if someone comes in and they're 300, then we really go on the dosing through the day where we're like, okay, after exercise, we're hitting that 35 to 40 gram. Every meal we want around 40 grams because when we're up that high with our body weight, then you can definitely tip over in the amount of calories that they're consuming in a day. So when we get down to the 180, this is where we can look and say, okay, we can look and use those guidelines, but we want to take those guidelines and again, make sure you're getting it across the day. So some people will be like, well, I'm 160 and my ideal weight is 140. What should I go on? We know that the higher protein intake also helps with body fat loss because it is allowing you to conserve your lean mass and also increasing the amount of circulating amino acids that your body will use for other functions instead of stripping down your lean mass because you're in a calorie deficit. Yeah. Um, let's talk overall so are there mechanical differences and i know you mentioned this but we talk a lot about total daily energy expenditure um and finding that calorie balance and making sure you're not you know combining thermic effective food your neat your workout calories and your basal metabolic rate you know it's amazing the misinformation that so many people you know they come in and they're like oh 1200 calories is the number and we're like well so we use an in-body scan. It's not, you know, it's oh, not a perfect system by any means. We have the in-body 570, but it gives us a basal, basal metabolic rate. And we're like, hey, your basal metabolic rate is 1500. You would never want you to eat less than that ever, you know? And they're like, I've been eating 1200 calories for the last four years because that's what I read in the magazine or something. So I know a big thing is eating more than you probably are comfortable with because, you know, so talk about, total calories, and then I want to talk about carbs. Yeah, well, one, don't knock the in-body because it's been validated against the DEXA. So it has good validity, so it's good. Uh, the second is, we hear a lot about relative energy deficiency and support in the younger set. And we see menstrual cycle dysfunction and endocrine issues in the younger set, but it is very prevalent in the 40 plus set. The problem is we can't rely on menstrual cycle irregularity because we don't know if it is because of low energy availability or if it is because of perimenopause. So we talked about the delta, the change, where if we are fueling appropriately for our training, so we're eating before and after, we're having regular doses of protein throughout the day, then we're relatively staying out of low energy availability. Because if we don't eat after exercise, 
we end up in this catabolic state, like I talked about before, and your body perceives it as being in a low energy state. So again, it's really important to fuel in around training. I'm not one for an absolute amount of calories in a day because our days are always different. So we're not an algorithm, we're very dynamic. So I always take it as we need to fuel for what we're doing. And we have some people who understand that and can open the fridge and be like, I'm gonna take all these raw ingredients and make this beautiful meal. And then we have other people open the fridge and go, I have no idea what to do. There's a jar of peanut butter and there's bread. I'm gonna have a peanut butter sandwich because I don't know what to do. So this is where we use the metric of, you know, as many different colorful fruits and veggies you can have throughout the day. And then let's look at what your protein choices are. Are you plant-based? Sweet, that's fine. We can look at tempeh, we can look at um, different beans, we can look at grains, we can look at combinations. You're not plant-based? Sweet, now we can look at the all the seafood, we can look at eggs and dairy. So we just want to educate what protein looks like. Um, if you eat enough protein, and you're eating a lot of variety of fruit and veg, then you tend to not have as many cravings. Right. And your gut diversity is very widespread, which is fantastic because this then feeds forward to allowing the hypothalamus to work properly with regards to um, satiation, ghrelin, leptin, all those things, because they're tightly tied to intestinal um, bacteria. So instead of talking about macros and absolute calories, we talk about the spread of the day and really emphasizing how important protein is with lots of colorful fruit and veg. Now, I am the 80-20 person. There is 20% of life. So if you want some dark chocolate, have some. Don't say I can't have it till cheat day because I don't believe in cheat days. I hate cheat days because it's just, yeah, it does people's heads in because they like eat supposedly clean all week and then they eat all this crap on one day. But in actuality, if they were to spread it out throughout the entire week, they wouldn't feel deprived. They've had better body composition change. Right. So take that 20% and understand that yes, some is fine. Yes, some wine or some ice cream or whatever it is, but it shouldn't be a habit. It should be something that is a treat. Yeah. And so I, I love the approach, you know, what we always recommend is eat protein at every meal eat it first. You mentioned the ghrelin and the leptin, you know, we just found that protein makes you feel more full than a lot of other foods. So if you are eating protein, eating it first in the meal, you typically end up eating less overall. Um, now, with that being said, I, I wanted to ask you about ghrelin and leptin earlier. So ghrelin is the hunger hormone. Of, you know, I, I would say ghrelin makes your tummy growl. Leptin makes you want to eat less. So is there a mechanical effect on ghrelin and leptin through this perimenopause phase? Meaning, are, are your hunger hormones getting a little wonky and making you feel more hungry than usual? Is that a part of it? Yes. Yeah. And again, it comes down to the um, gut microbiome because we have intestinal uh, peptides that will then release signals for ghrelin to, to actually you know, either be downregulated or upregulated. And when we start to lose that, that diversity in the gut, we start losing the bacteria that signals, no, we don't need so much. And this is why a lot of women who are perimenopausal have a lot of cravings and they eat a lot because they're like, I'm so hungry, I'm so hungry, I'm so hungry. So we knock it on the head by lots of fiber and protein. Because if we do that, then we're getting um, some stretch response. So we're getting stretch response within the intestines and the stomach from the fiber that then feeds back and says, hey, we have enough food coming on. 
Um, also, it's slower release, so we have a more stable blood sugar. So that feeds back and says, hey, we don't need to eat more. And then as you've noted, protein is very satiating and it also takes longer to digest, which helps with that blood glucose. So it, it is very real to have lots of cravings and feel like you want to eat a lot because there is a misstep in our appetite hormones, but we can counter that by changing our diet to have more fiber and protein. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important, and you kind of alluded to this, but to not look at it as a diet, because a diet is something that you do. And when you do something, it leads to being done. And I think when you talk about cheat days, you know, you're always looking at it as like this other thing, when it should just be, this is how I live. And you, you unless you approach a change in the way you're eating like that, it's very likely to fail. Um, and then there's a whole cycle and guilt and shame cycle that, you know, can, can spiral for a lot of people as well. So, yeah. And it's the same with changing training too, right? Because coming from a typical way that people are training and then all of a sudden telling them, no, they have to drop volume and do more heavy lifting and high intensity work. It is really hard to understand unless you take it as the eye to living till you're 90 without the fear of falling and without the fear of injury and without the fear of getting weak bones. Yeah. So is that health scope? And it's the same with diet. It shouldn't be a diet. It's a lifestyle choice. Yeah. Um, to, to wrap a bow on this, you mentioned carbs. You know, I, I think you, you made the point, but carbs are good. They are the body's primary source of fuel, especially if you're living a, an active lifestyle and you want to get strong and you do want to recompose, recomposition your body. Touch on fats. Fats are good too. People are afraid of fats in their 40s and 50s because of the low fat snack well era, but fats are good. And we have seen some debunking of the research that says animal fats are not good for you. So a wide variety of fat is good for you too. So it's a plant-based, you can have some saturated animal fats and it should be around 25% of your total intake. Uh, can be as high as 30 as you're getting older as well because you're reducing the amount of carbohydrate you're coming in. You want to replace it with fat for satiation and also blood sugar control. So don't be afraid of fat. You can take flaxseed oil and pour that stuff on your salad so you can actually absorb more from your veggies because oils help you absorb fat-soluble vitamins that happen to be in a lot of raw veggies. Yeah, and I was very excited to hear about some of those animal studies because I like red meat. So awesome. There you go. So uh, to finish the nutritional talk, are there supplements, vitamins, anything that you would recommend for a woman at this stage of life? You know, our view on supplements has always been, you know, it is exactly that you're supplementing in what you are not getting from a regular diet. Um, and yeah, touch on that. Yes, absolutely. Um, the two big ones are vitamin D3, especially mm -hmm. after training because it knocks inflammation down and then you're able to absorb iron. Because post-training, you have upregulation of this um, enzyme from the liver called hepcidin and hepcidin inhibits your body's ability to absorb iron. But if you take vitamin D after training, it drops hepcidin and then you can absorb iron. So you reduce your risk of becoming iron deficient or having low normal iron. Works in men too. But for this age group for women, creatine, and not from a bodybuilding standpoint, we're talking three to five gram doses a day only, not the 20 
doesn't have to be taken with carbohydrate. It can just be straight three to five grams for a variety of reasons. Uh, one, we store about 30 to 40% less than men and we lose more as we get older. But it, we also know that creatine is responsible for all the fast energetics in our body. So the mucosal lining of our intestines, intestinal mobility, our brain health, our cardiovascular health. And we know that with perimenopause, we have a lot of neurotransmitter issues, which causes depression, anxiety, sympathetic drive. Creatine knocks that on the head as well, because we look at some of the um, RTCs of serotonin reuptake inhibitors, your typical prescription antidepressant versus creatine. People taking that three to five gram dose come out of a depressive, anxious um, episode a lot faster and stay out of it as long as they're using creatine as compared to an SSRI. So it is really, really beneficial at this point in a woman's life to be able to have that creatine available for the fast changing aspects that's happening in the brain. It also supports the nerve growth factor that happens with heavy lifting. So we want creatine. Those so, are the two big ones that I would suggest. So someone's coming in the gym and they're complaining about having lots of vasomotor symptoms and hot flashes and it's interfering with their training, they can use the beta alanine because beta alanine will help with that. It will be a vasodilator and that will help with the temperature misstep that the hypothalamus is reading because you will have more compliant blood vessels. So dealing with hot flashes was one of the main questions that we got. And you said beta alanine is one of the main things that you can do? Yeah. Yep. And it's a thousand milligrams, not enough to cause a tingling sensation. It's just a small enough dose to support body function. Okay. Um, and so again, the, one of the things that we see from a lot of clients is we, we talk about, you know, nutrient timing and when clients should be eating enough and how to get more protein. And they're like, I just can't eat that much, or they're not willing to eat that much. What are your thoughts on a protein supplement to supplement somebody that just can't seem to get enough whole foods in their diet? Yeah, absolutely. It's a supplement, just like um, menopause hormone therapy. It's a therapy. It's a supplement to help you get through this transition. Uh, I know and use and love to support protein supplementation because there are times when you just can't eat. You don't feel hungry, but you know you need it. And it is part of the whole cadre of foods that you can use to support what's going on. Good. Um, and is there whey versus uh, plant-based? Is there any you know, absorption, bioavailability? Yeah, so we look at the um, biological values, right? And we know that the egg white is 100. Whey protein isolate is 110. And whey concentrate is 80. So we don't want the whey concentrate, we want the whey hydrolysate or the whey isolate. If we're plant-based, then we want a pea protein isolate and you can add some rice or some hemp to it, but pea protein isolate on its own is right on that cusp of enough leucine. So the two are really the two top end ways and pea protein isolate. Awesome, that's really helpful information. We, we actually work with a company that does both of them. So Excellent. that's good. Yeah. Um, I had one more thing I wanted to touch on, but um, that was, this was phenomenal. Um, Great. What would you say, I mean, overall approach, 
a woman wants to, you know, is listening to this, she wants to, you know, change her body composition. What is like a Monday through Friday routine from a bird's eye view? From bird's eye view, um, I always go, okay, we want to make sure you have enough recovery. And we also want stimulus. So Monday, Tuesday, we do some hard stuff. Usually we do um, heavy lifting followed by a really short sprint interval on Monday. Tuesday would be a high intensity interval training, like a real high intensity interval training. So the intervals are a little bit longer than a sprint interval. Wednesday would be more recovery modality stuff, maybe some really long, slow, really easy endurance stuff. Thursday, we do another LHS and, and sit training. Friday would be a total body workout. Right, so all muscles looking more of the LHS aspect if we have time. Otherwise, we can look at more um, body circuit. So you're getting more into the hit stuff. Saturday, we tend to have Saturday and Sunday swap. So either day is just a free play day, whatever you want to do, family time, relaxation time. And the other one, we spend time working on technique under the bar and working on Olympic lifts and power stuff. Awesome. And just LHS for anybody listening, that is the heavy lifting, the power training. And then she also mentioned like doing a heavy lifting session with that sit training at the end to kind of wrap it up. Is that correct? Yep. Awesome. Yep. Um, My husband says it's lift heavy stuff to keep yeah. it PC. <laughs> for sure. Um, thank you so much, Stacey. Uh, what, I know you have a course on your website. So what, where can people find you? What's the absolute best resource for clients of ours that majority of them want body recomposition, but really just to manage this process and area of their life and thrive through it? Yeah. Um, the website is Dr. Dr. Stacy Sims, um, and that has a list of all our courses. So we have two big courses. We have the Women Are Not Small Men. That's kind of like the snapshot overview of puberty and postmenopause. And then we have the Menopause 2.0 which is the menopause for athlete that I've just revamped. And that is a deep in-depth five week course that's on all of this stuff. Um, and then we have micro learnings, which are small deep dives on special topics. So we have like protein supplementation, collagen, using hot and cold for performance and health, um, creatine, I don't know, some, a whole bunch of other ones because we've done so many, I can't remember them all, sorry. But if someone's just putting their foot in the door and wanting to understand it, I think right now the best resource bang for your buck is getting next level and reading that and, and going through it. And then the next step would come and do kind of an intro course through us. Um, and then also following on Facebook and Instagram, because we're always updating and posting stuff on menopause, postmenopause, premenopause, all the hormone profiles. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate it, Stacey. Thank you.